Welcome to the Homeschooling Workshop cassette tape series. This is tape number two, entitled, The Battle for Your Child. Our instructor is Mr. Greg Harris, author of The Christian Home School and director of Christian Life Workshops. If you have further questions regarding Christian homeschooling, please write to us at Christian Life Workshops, 180 Southeast Kane Road, Gresham, Oregon, 97080. We will be glad to send you a resource packet of information to help you teach your children successfully at home. The packet is free for the asking, but if you can do so, please include one dollar to cover our postage and handling. In this second introductory session, Greg will present the biblical purpose for having and raising children and explain who is fighting for control over your child's education. And now here's Greg with The Battle for Your Child. In order for us to understand the battle that's going on today about homeschooling and about education in general, we have to understand the purpose of children. Why is anyone out there so concerned about our children that they would want to interfere with something that seems to be perfectly wholesome? Here we are, parents who want to take more initiative than average, that want to do more for our children than is common, and yet we're finding ourselves under the gun so many times. Why is this going on? The purpose of children, in the light of God's Word, is to have greater impact for God. In Psalm 127, we read in verses 3 through 5, Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Now I know that you know there are days when you, you look at your kids and they're, they're driving you crazy and they've broken something again or, and you're wondering, Lord, why do I have these kids? And the Lord says, you deserve those kids. They're a reward. You know, somewhere in your youth or childhood, you must have done something. And so God has counted you faithful, and he's given these children to you, but he didn't just give them to you just for fun. He says they are like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the sons of one's youth. God has given each child you have to you, and any child you will have in the future, he's given them to you, with the intention that you will aim them for life at targets that are pleasing to God. Now, in aiming an arrow, you have to take several things into consideration. Every arrow is unique. They all have their own unique bent. In Hebrew culture, there was no mass manufacturing of arrows. You had to make your own, and each one had its own peculiarities that you had to know about. And so when you aim a child, when you aim an arrow, you had to have two ends of the arrow in mind. There was a sharp point on one end. That was going to affect the impact that the child could have. If it's a blunt arrow, it'll probably just make the enemy mad, right? So you want a sharp arrow, an arrow that's going to have an impact. And that, I believe, deals with the academic preparation of the child. His training, his knowledge, his understanding, his wisdom. But on the other end of the arrow are these little feathers. And those feathers are there in order to give the arrow a sense of direction, to keep it traveling consistently on the path toward whatever it's been aimed at. And that, I believe, corresponds to the character training of your children. It's one thing to have a sharp arrow, and it's another thing to have 
an arrow that is going to maintain its direction when it leaves your hand. Homeschooling is the only educational option you've got that allows you to work on both ends of the child at the same time. Both ends of the arrow at the same time. This end and this end. And if you work faithfully on both ends of the arrow, there's a chance it'll hit a target someday and it'll make an impact. If you don't work on either one of those ends, you're probably going to end up with a frustration. You either won't hit the target, or if you hit it, nothing will happen. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. That makes me quiver every time I read it. You know, I'm glad to be able to make the announcement. Many of you are not aware that my wife is pregnant. Okay? And she's due to bring forth in November the 23rd and just the day before yesterday we had another discovery. Twins! So she is in the process of overcoming shock right now and her mother is there and they're all making plans and now we've got to go, you know, double everything and get ready for everything double. And we thought we were having trouble picking a name for one. Just, you know, think about trying to pick a name for two and everybody's already taken Jennifer and Jessica and all those others. Uh, it's hard to find a name anymore, isn't it? Everybody uses all the ones you like. That's how you like them. So, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. A man told me there are two ways to have a full quiver of arrows. One is to have a lot of kids and another is to have fat kids. I think God intended us to have lots of kids, and he intends for us to aim each child we have. It's not just a matter of having arrows, is it? You've got to have the time to aim them, too. And so God says, I want you to have a quiverful. And those who understand this will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate, in the gates of the city. Now, the gates of the city, in the time in which this was written, were the seat of civil power. It was a place where you went in order to have an impact on your community. Today we call it lobbying. Perhaps they called it gating. But it was the same thing. And a man who had managed his household faithfully, whose sons had been raised up and aimed into strategic places in the community and were standing faithfully as allies with their father, that was a man who, when he took his, his place in the gates of the city, people listened. He was the E.F. Hutton of his day. They listened when he spoke. They were willing to hear his counsel because they didn't want to get on the wrong side of a family with that kind of clout in the community. And I believe God is looking for men of clout today. Men who are faithful, who have integrity, and who are willing to step into the gates of the city and wield their influence for the glory of God and for the cause of justice in this world. And because children are intended to have that impact, there are people out there who are trying to steal your arrows. People who want to aim your children for life. Charles Francis Potter, writing in 1930, in a book called Humanism, A New Religion, wrote this. Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism, and every American school is a school of humanism. 
What can a theistic Sunday school meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of the five-day program of humanistic teaching? Now that's a good question, isn't it? And that was written in 1930 by Charles Francis Potter, one of the signers of the Humanist Manifesto Number 1, one of the founders of that movement. More recently, in 1976, writing in an article called Three Cheers for Our Secular State, Paul Blanchard in the Humanist Magazine, March-April issue of 1976, wrote, I think that the most important factor moving us toward a secular society has been the educational factor. Our schools may not teach Johnny how to read properly, but the fact that Johnny is in school until he is 16 tends to lead toward the elimination of religious superstition. The average American child now acquires a high school education, and this militates against Adam and Eve and all the other myths of alleged history. 1976. In 1983, John J. Dumphy wrote a prize-winning essay also published in the Humanist magazine, in which he writes, The battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to carry humanist values into whatever they teach. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new. The rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all of its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism. Are we overreacting? It's amazing to me that the, the minute we mention humanism in the schools, the media goes crazy. They say, there they go again. Talking about humanism, the, the new boogeyman of the evangelical community is secular humanism. If the USSR declared war on the United States, would we be overreacting if our nation said, red alert? Of course not. Then why is it considered an overreaction for a Bible-believing Christian to say, no thank you, I don't want to put my, school, my children into a school in which people are writing essays like this and getting prizes for it. Because even though every teacher may not be a, quote, secular humanist by, by card-carrying definition, those who are are probably not waving their arms and saying, I'm over here undermining the faith of your children. And even though there are many who are not card-carrying humanists, there are many who have adapted the worldview of the secular humanists without even realizing it. If you were to take a survey in the average school campus of any level and ask, do you believe uh, that, the that the earth is around 7,000 years old? The answer would probably be, of course not. Do you believe in evolution? Of course. Doesn't everybody? Except those right-wing radical fundamentalist. You see what's going on? Do you believe that there's such a thing as absolute right and absolute wrong? No, I believe people have to choose for themselves. People have embraced the basic dogma of secular humanism without even realizing that they have been indoctrinated by the school system that operates as 
the parochial schools of this new age religion. The tenets of secular humanism were set down in a document in 1933 called the Humanist Manifesto. In it, these three major tenets were stated in detail. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. And finally, humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. These three tenets and a few others comprise the basic dogma, the doctrine of secular humanism, and they are as zealous to convert others as anyone else in any religion. The fact is that they have used the public school system as their parochial schools. They have managed to make the state teachers' colleges and state teacher certification function as though it were a seminary for secular humanism and some form of ordination for the high priests of secular humanism, which are educators. The signers of the Humanist Manifesto Number 2 a revision and an update in 1972 include authors Isaac Asimov and John Chiardi, scientists Francis Crick, Andrei Sakharov, and Zoris Medvedev, educational psychologist B.F. Skinner, Alan Guttmacher, president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, Lawrence Ladder, chairman of the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws, Joseph Fletcher, the leading proponent of situation ethics in the United States, and Betty Frieden, founder of the National Organization of Women. For those of you that, that read your Newsweek once in a while, these people are, are not unknown, are they? They're in tremendous positions of influence in our nation. And secular humanism's impact upon the public schools came primarily through these two men and their colleagues. John Dewey, the father of progressive education, was one of the primary movers in the teacher education program at Columbia University. That program became the touchstone for most colleges of education in America. John Dewey's students went off not to become teachers in the local public school, but to become the deans of teachers' colleges, the superintendents of public schools. And so the influence of John Dewey through his students continues to this day to enlarge. B.F. Skinner, the father of what we know as behaviorism, a school of thought in psychology that views man as a complex machine whose behavior can be modified by environmental forces. This is the school of psychology that dominates the school of education at Harvard University. It's the primary focus of the public schools today, to view your child as someone whose behavior can be modified by positive reinforcement, by viewing your children as a, as a machine, as an animal to be trained, not as an individual with integrity, with the image of God, someone to be respected. B.F. Skinner, it's kind of ironic that one of his, the book that he's most famous for is called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. How can you go beyond those things? 
For him, it's just a matter of realizing that there is no such thing. That all of us are programmed to do whatever we do. And according to him, we are all here tonight because there are various programming and environmental factors that have brought us to this point. But all of it can be explained in terms of how we've been affected by our environment. With these kinds of attitudes dominating the schools today, we've started getting the attention that I believe that this thing is worth. Recently, J.I. Packer, those of you who uh, read widely in evangelical circles, will recognize Dr. Packer and his contribution to the church. I think he and uh, the late Francis Schaeffer and Chuck Colson are probably the three major voices we have today in the evangelical church. Dr. Packer writes, and how inescapable, to me at least, this man is not given to exaggeration, by the way. Those of you that have read any of his work know that he does not, he's not trying to use humanism as an issue to build his ministry, okay, as some will try to do. But rather he writes, how inescapable to me at least is the conclusion that the capture over the past half century by the imperialist ideology called secular humanism of America's media establishment, its educational establishment, its literary and artistic establishments, its medical, socio-economic, and legal establishments. In short, just about all its character-shaping and opinion-making structures apart from the evangelical church itself has been one of Satan's strategic maneuvers, a well-conceived and sadly successful one against the kingdom of God. When a man of the caliber of J.I. Packer would say something of this nature, it's time for us to prepare for a battle. Because there's, the Indians are all around us. And they're trying to steal our arrows. And what secular humanism has swept clean, it appears that the New Age movement is ready to fill. Jesus wrote in Matthew 12, 43 and 45 through 45, When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through the arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Now notice this last statement. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So Jesus is applying to a whole generation the principle of what can happen to an individual who by some means evicts a bad thing and doesn't put a good thing in its place. What is happening is that secular humanism, in its zeal to evict what it believes to be religious superstition, has evicted all authority from a religious perspective. It has swept the schools clean of spiritual content, as it were. And now the New Age movement comes creeping in with a scientific garb. And for some reason it's completely unchallenged. 
A secular humanist on one hand will say to the Christian, stop praying. But he'll somehow applaud someone over here saying a mantra or, or meditating or doing something of that sort. Over here when we say, well, the Holy Spirit led me to do this, he'll say, stop that. That's a breach of our constitutional liberties. On the other hand, they'll be teaching children how to find a spirit guide or an inner light or, or some inner guide to help them make decisions. Do you see what's going on? In their foolishness, proclaiming themselves wise, they've become fools, they've evicted God, and now they open their arms wide to anything spiritual that's not biblical. Anything spiritual that doesn't have anything to do with Christianity, that's somehow okay, and it's happening all over the United States. Even in the smallest town, if your small town teachers have been educated in the state teachers' colleges and have been certified by state organizations, then the odds are that they are just as devoted to these kinds of new age techniques as the big city teachers and the big city schools. When I hear people say to me, well, it may be bad in the cities, but it's not the same out here in the country, I wonder, where do your teachers get their training? As though somehow it was the parents in the community that did the teaching that the smallness of the town would change the, the quality of the school. It's the training of the teacher and the training of the administrator that makes the difference. And as long as the schools are dominated by those who have evicted God and his word, the schools will continue to be what Martin Luther calls the gates of hell. He writes, I am much afraid that the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must be corrupt. Now those are strong words, but I believe they're words that need to be shouted from the housetops today. For us to think that any institution can remain pure when it has rejected the authority of the Word of God and will not even permit the Ten Commandments to be posted on the wall, that's deception. Because history has shown us over and over again that unless there's an absolute standard that men cleave to and diligently seek out to excel in, there's going to be a drift a creeping secularism that ultimately takes the institution, even the very Lutheran church itself, if it forsakes the authority of the word of God, can move into the direction of the very corruption that Martin Luther warned about. Martin Luther placed the emphasis not upon a personal experience, but rather upon the light of the word of God. He says, unless we devote ourselves to the scriptures, we become corrupt. It's not an issue of whether or not this teacher or that teacher claims to be born again. Because in the kind of easy believism that we have today, there are a lot of people out there that claim to be saved because of some experience. But you don't see the fruit that's meat for repentance, do you? You don't see a lifestyle that's changed. You don't see any evidence that they love Jesus Christ. I tell my sons, I'm not so much concerned with whether or not your future spouse says they're born again. I want to know, are they in love with Jesus? Are they serving Jesus Christ by name? If they're not, then it's an unequal yoke as far as I'm concerned. Because we are not to just accept some glib 
profession as though that were all it takes to be right with God. I believe God has called us to the kind of faith that works its way out in our lives. We are not saved by works, folks, but if there are no works at all, I think we at least need to ask, Lord, can I see my birth certificate? I'm a little concerned. And so we find the Word of God is the the key to giving us that standard that keeps us out of the ditches on either side of the road. In Psalm 119, verse 105, we read, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. Without the word of God, no matter what we claim to believe, we're only stumbling in the dark. If you believe the word of God, if you say that this book has authority, then we should be able to see that you believe that by the way you consult it in every area of your life. And if you're making major decisions, or even minor decisions, without the light of God's Word, why stumble in the dark when you've got the light? There are so many of us who do believe the Word of God as it relates to our salvation. But when it would try to speak to us concerning the education of our children, or the operation of our businesses, or the way we vote in the next election, We act as though it had nothing to say. And yet the Word of God tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the Greek, this word every is literally the word every. There is no good work that the Word of God does not adequately equip you to fulfill as God intended. Now that means that if you are running a business and you don't know what the Bible has to say about business, you're running your business in the dark. Saved or not, you're running that business in the dark. If you don't know what the Bible has to say about government and about how to govern a free people with dignity, then no matter what your party affiliation may be or what your political convictions may be, when you step into the voting booth in November, you'll vote in the dark. And if you don't know what the Bible has to say about children and about the education of children, even if you choose to homeschool your children, you'll be homeschooling them in the dark. Because it's this that's the light. And your homeschools will be corrupt unless they walk in the light of God's Word. I'm convinced that we, as evangelicals, as Bible believers, have allowed ourselves to fall into lip service to the authority of God's Word. But we do not walk in its counsel. If we did, it would revolutionize first our own homes, then our neighborhoods, then our communities, and ultimately our nation and the world. I believe that that's the purpose of the Christian life, is to be salt and light. And all who live godly in Christ Jesus, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus, are going to cause riots and revivals everywhere they go. That's called persecution. So what does the Bible have to say about education? Well, in one sentence, 
The Bible teaches by commandment and by example that children are to be trained primarily by their own parents in and around the home. Now, the commandments are one thing, the examples are another. The commandments are pretty clear cut. We have two specific commandments here. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7 tells us, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Notice this is a very casual, but yet very intentional approach to the instruction of children. We're to teach them diligently, on the one hand, and then to follow through with conversation that follows the natural rhythm of our daily routine. In Ephesians 6, verse 4, we read, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's important to note here that the instead means, on the contrary, rather than doing that, do this. Fathers, don't be harsh with your kids. Instead, and I paraphrase it, bring them up the way God brings up his kids. Teach them and instruct them, train them in the same way that God trains and instructs you as a child of God. That's what of the Lord means. It doesn't mean Sunday school. It means you be for your children what God the Father is to you. And that is how you break the cycle, what comes sometimes is a vicious cycle, of either imitating or overreacting to the parenting style of your own parents. Did you have great parents? If you imitate them, you'll still not be doing as good a job as if you imitate God the Father. Were your parents lousy? Well, in your attempt to try to not do to your kids what they did to you, you will not be as good a parent as if you just imitate God's style of parenting. God is saying to us, you do it the way I do it, and the way he does it is revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation. The parenting style of God the Father is to become our parenting style. And as we draw near to him, we become more and more like him. We pick up his style. Try it. It really does work. So these are commandments. But God knows, because he is a good dad, that you can tell your kids all these things over and over, but unless you tell your kids a few stories of what happened to the last kid who didn't do what he was told, very little will happen. God knows that we are not uh, likely to follow through with his commandments unless there's a real clear uh, reason before us to do so. And so God gives us two very clear examples. The examples of Lot and Noah, a tale of two fathers, both of them living in the period of the book of Genesis, both of them young fathers at the time that this happens, both of them warned by God about impending judgment, and yet we get two entirely different final results. First, let's take a look at the story of Noah. In Genesis 6, verse 13, we read, And so God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. 
So, make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. We have this story capsulized for us in Hebrews 17, or chapter 11 and verse 7, which is the hall of fame of faith. And in this, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God, or when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And by his faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The question is, how did Noah win his family to his faith? They all got into the ark. For them, that was the, the, the essence of asking Jesus Christ to come into their heart. For them, that was, that was the same as walking the aisle and, and asking Christ to be their Savior and Lord. How did he bring his family with him in his faith? Did you notice that all the other people didn't follow Noah's counsel. Who followed Noah's counsel? The answer is, it was those who knew him best. Noah was a man respected most by those who knew him best. And the way in which he accomplished that, and it's not easy, was that he lived his life before them with integrity. In the intimate relationships of those closest to him, he was consistent with what he believed. And think about it for a minute. You can't hide an ark in your basement. If you're going to live out the appropriate response to the word of God that you've received, other people are going to notice. And they're going to respond to you in terms of however their hearts relate to God. For those who are being saved, you'll smell like life. For those that are perishing, you'll smell like death. And if you do what the Word of God requires you to do as an appropriate response, people will notice and you will have to take the heat for your actions. You're going to have to endure the consequences of having taken a stand for what you believe. And if your children are there when it happens, if they see Dad taking the heat, somebody laughing, maybe accusing him, questioning his motives, doing those kind of things. They say, boy, did you see that? Dad was over there. That guy was talking. Man, Dad's got guts. I want to I serve the God of my father. I want to be like Dad. If you want your children to follow you in your faith, then you better start collecting a little evidence that could convict you of having convictions. You'd better start accumulating something that says that your faith is more than just a Sunday morning routine that somehow puts you in the good graces with a few relatives. Because it's that kind of Christianity that kids grow up and say, who needs it? Why play the game? If you're going to backpedal every time you have a chance to stand for something and you figure out a way to rationalize your way out of it so you don't have to take the heat for, for believing that the Bible means what it says and says what it means, then who needs that kind of a God? Don't be surprised if your children aren't interested in your Christianity if they don't see any effects in your life for having believed that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. But because Noah lived his life 
openly, with confidence in the word of God that he'd received, his children and his wife and the wives of his sons all believed with him and the only ones that got into that ark were those closest to Noah. He was respected most by those who knew him best, not respected most by those who knew him least. That's public relations. Noah was not into being respected by the crowds. He wanted to make sure that those that knew the most of him respected him the greatest. That doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that you're handling your imperfections with maturity, with the grace of God. And so we find that the household of Noah was saved from the judgment of God. And then we turn to the story of a man named Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will bless your name, make your name great, and, I will, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. We don't know for certain whether Lot was supposed to do that. Of course, in the sovereignty of God, God knew he would. But we do find very quickly that the land was not big enough for the both of them. Because the blessing of God was upon both households, one day there, there arose quarreling between Abraham's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. And so Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And so he's going to let Lot choose. Now Lot chose, instead of choosing the, land, the God of opportunity, Lot chose the land of opportunity. He looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord. And so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east and the two men parted company. This is the Silicon Valley of shepherding, okay? He says, this is where I can get ahead. I'll have fatter sheep. They'll multiply more quickly. The climate is perfect. This is where I can go to really get ahead in this world. But that's the problem. This world. And so Lot moves and notice he pitched his tents near Sodom. Now think about that. Sodom is not a very nice place, was it? It has a reputation for having not been a very nice place. A wicked city. And we read in Genesis 13, verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And we usually jump to the conclusion and say, Oh yeah, they were homosexuals. But folks, God did not judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality. Homosexuality is just the fruit, one of many, that was dangling out here on the end of a system that went right down to its roots. The roots that produced the fruits of Sodom and Gomorrah are spelled out for us in Ezekiel 16 and verse 49 and 50. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant and overfed and unconcerned. 
They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. What was it that God was offended at when you count it? It was that they were arrogant. They were proud. They were idle. And they were wealthy with no compassion for the poor. Sounds like every metropolitan community around the world, doesn't it? It sounds like just about every major city in this world today. Proud. Lots of time on their hands. No compassion for others. You mix those three ingredients and you'll get all kinds of sensuous perversions. Because people get bored and they want a new thrill and they'll try anything. And anything can get pretty bizarre, can it? not very long until you see the fruits of this kind of a, of a sin nature coming out. And God said, I'm going to show the world for this one occasion what my opinion of is this kind of lifestyle. And he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And I believe it should cause all of us to, to fear and tremble that God could intervene at any time to deal with the nations for their sin. And so God stops off at the tent of Abraham to tell him that he was going to go and judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, well, wait a minute. What if there are 50 righteous in the city? Would you judge the, the righteous with the wicked? And God says, for the sake of 50 righteous, I will spare both cities. But you see, Abraham was a kind of an unusual guy. Uh, he was the kind of a dad that when Isaac would come in and say, Dad, can I borrow 50 shekels? Abraham would say, 40 shekels? What do you want 30 shekels for? I'm not going to give you 20 shekels. I'll give you 10. And so, uh, you know, God says 50. Abraham's not satisfied with that. He says, well, wait a minute. What about if there's only, say, shy five of those? What if there's only 45? God says, okay, 45. Finally, 40. 35. 30. All the way down to, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And so the angels depart to go and take a census of the righteous in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. When they arrived in, the, in Genesis 19 and verse 1, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. What do you do in the gates of the city? What is the gate of the city in this period of time? It's the seat of civil power. It's the place to go if you're trying to change things in town, trying to influence the course of the community. That's no accident. They meet Lot sitting in the gate of the city. When he saw the men, he got up to meet them and he bowed down his face to the ground. So he encourages them to join him for the night. He says, please come and stay at my house. They said, no, we'll just sleep out in the square. He said, no, please don't do that. You've got to come into the house. So they get into the house. But before they got there, the men of the city had seen them. And they surrounded Lot's house and they said, Bring these men out that we may know them. They wanted to take advantage of them. And so before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men that came to you tonight? Bring them out so we can have sex with them. And Lot went out to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, do do." Don't do this wicked thing. It's interesting that when Lot said wicked, the tone of the crowd suddenly got mean. I'll show you what I mean. 
He says in the next verse, Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Thanks a lot, Dad. Can you imagine these two daughters? Dad has just offered you to a homosexual mob to do anything they want in order to protect a couple of guys who have just arrived that night. Now, folks, tomorrow, you know, I'll be dealing briefly with the potential of hospitality. And this is not part of it. Okay? You don't have to sacrifice your children in order to fulfill your ministry. Remember, there was a, a god in the Old Testament of the pagans called Moloch. And Moloch required child sacrifice as an act of worship to him. And our God is not Moloch. So whether you're a pastor or a missionary, or whether you're involved in any other ministry in this world, remember, the seasons of your life are in a predictable order. And there are certain things that maybe God has put it in your heart to want to do for him. And that may be from God, but don't confuse the seasons of your life. God does not require a child sacrifice in order for you to fulfill your ministry for him. It's probably just a matter of timing, not a matter of, your, of the direction. Don't think that you're doing something good when your children are put into an incredibly risky situation so that you can be free to minister to others. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. 
There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.